Hi, this is Anina Livingstone, and you are listening to my new podcast, Tending the Soul of Relationship. I want to welcome you by offering all of the interviews from my seven-week Clarity of Calling online course. This was the topic of my doctoral research based on my own struggles, curiosity, and passion for the topic. So if you're looking for more clarity, courage, or commitment as you tend to your calling, you've come to the right place. I've interviewed my most cherished mentors and respected colleagues to bring you this wealth of supportive wisdom. If you'd like to take the course in its entirety, feel free to go to my website at www.aninialivingstone.com where you can download the ebook and accompanying weekly guidance. I wish you all the courage and clarity you need to fulfill your calling so that together we can create a more vibrant world. All right, welcome everyone to our call on calling and the allies. And we have Marty Spiegelman here today. And I'm going to start with her bio, and then we will move into our interview. So Marty Spiegelman brings nearly four decades of specialized training in shamanic traditions and related fields to her current work as a leadership advisor, executive mentor, and shamanic teacher. She's the founder of Shaman's Light, a professional-level shamanic initiation and mentoring program dedicated to the evolution of consciousness and the creation of abundance through passion-based work. Marty holds a BA in biochemistry from Harvard and an MFA in graphic design from Yale. She also has advanced training in psychology, anthropology, and neurophysiology, and she's initiated in shamanic traditions in Peru, West Africa, and the Himalayas. Marty's Marty's insights into our uniquely human capacity to create, evolve, and thrive provide the inspiration for the training programs and lectures she offers around the world. So welcome to the call, Marty. Thank you very much, Anina. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Very wonderful to have you. Um, I want to start, as I usually do, by asking people about their own experience, since this course is about calling and specifically we're looking at allies today, I would love if you'd share anything that you feel comfortable with about your own calling, maybe how you discovered it or how you might describe it, whether that's kind of in literal terms or mythic terms or symbolic terms, because we're playing with all of that in our course. Mm -hmm. And it's helpful to hear other people's kind of stories. So anything you feel comfortable sharing would be great. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, the, the art of what we call calling in English is uh, it's worldwide and every indigenous culture has a way of doing what we call calling um, throughout our talk you'll find me referring to um, the fact that we're using the english language and the words that we use are our words so i'll always be working backwards from the english term to the real indigenous meaning and mm -hmm. the, the art of calling is actually, uh, I love the way the, uh, the Mayans talk about it. It's one of the first steps in shamanic initiation, which means it's one of the first steps in coming into full consciousness. And the, the object, if you will, of the exercise is to become the object of desire of a power or an intelligence in nature. In mm. other words, to become an attractive part of the big thing the big system that we live within, we could think of that as nature or the earth or the entire universe. And so mm -hmm. the art of calling is, um, I think at the base, it is realizing that you are part of 
the world. You are part of the world, not separate from it, but part of it. And you're not the essential part of it. There are other powers who want to work with you and move through you and express information from what we call the other world, the spirit world, through you into this world. Because that's how this whole reality we live in works. What we see as form is expressed from the other world. So the art of calling is for the shaman, for the initiated person, is um, one of the first steps to getting, we could say, loosely plugged in to the whole system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, another view of calling is um, uh, we sometimes call it prayer. And if we look at this through a shamanic lens, um, the, the art of calling or saying a prayer at a shrine is to open one's consciousness to the extent that the other world picks up the, the energy frequency and starts speaking through the shaman or speaking through the person who's praying at the shrine. This is how the, the, uh, the Druids, the Celtic culture, describes prayer, that, that whatever you call God starts speaking through you because your initial speech is so um, steeped in love and awareness and desire to connect. So mm-hmm. when, when a modern person thinks about allies, um, y- usually I would say our, our, uh, um, our radar screen's a little too small, but um, I could say that in my own experience that um, the first large radar screen I had was when I began traveling in the Arctic, and I began to realize which animals came every time I was there. Every single time I was there, there would be certain animals and one of those in particular, I'll just tell a little story, is the wolf. And um, it started to be the case that every time I was out in the Arctic on a wilderness trip, there would be wolves either in camp or right around camp or sitting by my tent at night, and I could tell because footprints would be there where they hadn't been before. And um, it was really, really hard to miss that there was an intelligence that was connecting with me. So um, that's one of the, um, in my adult life, one of the first allies that, that became um, really obvious to me. And um, another a really sweet thing is in terms of allies, there are, on the property where I do my teaching, there are three specific guardians who show up all the time. And uh, we have the red-shouldered hawk, the ravens, and the fox. Um, and the ravens here, if you want to um, talk about calling, the ravens, um, the, the physical ravens, will come when I whistle. Mm-hmm. And um, it's quite phenomenal because they know I'm working at the shrine and I whistle and there are two pairs, either one will show up on that whistle. And um, they know when people are working at the shrine, people who are not connected to those ravens. They know when we're doing spirit work, because when we're doing work at the shrine, they show up. Mm-hmm. So if you look at this through a, a physical lens, an ordinary lens, you say, oh, isn't that cute? The ravens come. You know, they must be trained. But actually, when you look at it through the lens of consciousness, or we could say through a shamanic lens, the spirit that expresses itself as raven in our world understands the speech that we bring to that shrine and comes to support and comes Mm -hmm. to speak through and comes to hold the energy field so our prayers are delivered in a really strong and focused way. Mm. Great example. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Go ahead. I was just going to say the other thing I I would add um, uh, for people who are new to this kind of topic, it is always the case 
that if you can remember when you were a little kid, if you had a favorite stuffed animal, the reason you had the stuffed animal is that animal found you when you were born and said, I'm going to be your lifetime ally. Mm-hmm. It is always the case. Sometimes they mm. call those a, a life guardian. Mm. Yeah, so all these unconscious ways we are connecting, but we don't realize it until we find a mentor, someone like you. <laughs> <laughs> that's very sweet. Thank you. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and actually, that's a that's a, a very tender thing between you and me. Um, but also, uh, it's really true that finding a mentor is really important because this business of you know, if all you want to do is have an ally, you're entering the the realm of collective consciousness, and and learning to connect requires a mentor because it's collective work. Mm-hmm. It's really important. So many people want to figure it out themselves and do it alone, and, and they don't ever actually get there. They get the idea of it, but the actual experience of the plug-in never happens because we have to be collective in this. And can you say more about that, why it's collective work, why one might not be able to just go out and make connection themselves? Um, consciousness is collective. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. it, and this is a really interesting point because um, the modern mind wants to know why. We're always asking, how do I do that, and why should I do that, and why is it that way? Um, the indigenous mind understands that life is simply collective. If you look at um, any system in nature, take a forest as an example, every single tree and other plant in the forest is exactly the way it is because it's connected to the forest system, right? And that's, mm-hmm. that forest is an example of consciousness in action. Um, if you want to go to science, uh, we can talk to Janine Benius, who does, uh, she's a biologist and she does extraordinary stuff. She says very beautifully that nothing exists outside of a system. Mm-hmm. Nothing, right? And yeah. the problem with modern people who want to go out and just do it themselves is they're running their awareness only through the personal part of their mind. And when our awareness runs through the personal part, which is where the ego structure lives, our awareness gets narrowed to the point where we can't actually experience the full plug-in. So you might get an idea that you have an ally, but you won't be able to experience the fullness of the relationship. And Mm -hmm. that's a technical matter. You know, awareness Mm -hmm. has to be full in order for that full relationship to be experienced. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let me see if I fully understand what you're saying. So <clears throat> so obviously part of the collective is relationship, and you can have a human being and a tree, and there can be some kind of dialogue between those two people, those two beings. Mm-hmm. But you're expanding it in terms of the collective saying that um, we can't learn this fully on our own, that there's something collective about the actual learning experience, that the mentorship is part of the collective experience that humans need. Yeah. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, uh-huh. that's, a, that's a good way to restate it. And um, I can uh, expand on that a little bit because this is really critical for people. Uh-huh. Um, I, I often talk about the four cornerstones of consciousness, and, and this is relative to human beings. Um, one cornerstone is perception, the act of perception. And we're actually perceiving all the time. All it means is, is we're taking in sensory data through our sensing systems from the world 24-7. And that's, that's a fact. 
Um, mm-hmm. The next cornerstone is awareness. Now, most people are not aware of how much they're perceiving. It takes training to learn how to flow your awareness through your entire, we'll call it for now, mind, so you can actually perceive all, so you can actually be aware of all the things you're perceiving. Most modern people run their awareness only through what we're going to call, for the moment, the linear mind. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the third cornerstone of consciousness, which is linear um, or strategic intelligence. We, and this is where we ask the how. How do I get from A to B? Why, why would I go from A to B? This is where those questions live. Um, but the linear mind or the strategic mind is not directly wired to the world. It's wired to receive instruction from the fourth cornerstone, which is relational intelligence. And our relational mind, it's where all of our sensing systems converge in the relational mind. Sometimes we call it the, um, the imagination. But the part of your brain that is receiving 24-7 all the sensory data from the world, that's where your relational intelligence exists. That part of our brain puts chunks of data together, this to this to this to this to this. So in the experience of the world, we begin to know the world. If you don't have awareness running in that part of your mind, and again, you can call it the relational mind or you can call it your imagination, you don't actually know where your understanding of the world is coming from. And so drift, drift ourselves, let's drift ourselves over to the, the linear mind, which is a, a bare 2% of our brains. And we have our awareness in there. We don't have direct connection to the outside world. We're receiving some chunks of data from our relational mind, but we don't know the source of that data. Yeah. And let's say I'm, I'm in a linear state and I go out into nature and I have an idea that I want to connect with a raven. I'm going to be thinking about connecting with the raven because that's all the linear mind has. It does not have anything else. So in the moment, if I'm totally linear and I, this is, your ego structure is also in this linear mind, and I go out to, to connect with a raven, the I in me isn't receiving data from the world. It's only got the map of the idea, which is to connect with raven. I have to become collective. I have to, it has to be more than the I in me that wants to connect so what we learn in, in shamanic training is you, the first thing you learn is to flood your awareness into your relational mind. So you've got 100% of you, not just 2% of you, aware. And then you learn to flood that out into the world. And the fact is, in that state, you're beginning to become fully conscious and you experience collectivity. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no way to explain it other than having the experience. And when you're connected in that way, you are collective. You'll know it in your gut. You'll know in your belly, oh, I'm part of something. And that's when the raven shows up. Right. And, and you know, I think that place of relational mind and all the sensing systems is actually very alive when we're children and we're trained out of that. So we all have a somatic memory of, of that because that's a birthright. We're born with that. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's, so there's, so it's just in thinking about people who are listening and 
yes, there's this, there's, there is training and there is mentorship and there is learning and there's practice, and it's in us. We're born with it. And so, like, both of those feel important to hold, right? You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yes, and, and it's actually, the, we're saying, I wouldn't even say both of them, we're saying the same thing. Yes, And, yeah. and you've actually triggered a thought that may, may help people listening to our discussion. Um, if our awareness is flowing only in the linear mind where, mm-hmm. the, where the ego structure lives, we will begin to understand the world in terms of ourselves singular. Mm-hmm. When we learn to flood our consciousness with awareness, the dependence on the I, the ego structure, softens. And the ego begins to realize it's not in control of everything, but is part of everything. It's happier being part of everything. Mm-hmm. And, but the ego, it, it, you know, most modern people are taught, as you just said, this is the other way to say it, we're taught to shut down the imagination and put our awareness in that linear mind and um, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and figure everything out and be a unique individual, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we're taught. And we can't release from that without somebody else holding the space. Because the isolated right. ego will not let go, right? Yeah, I I definitely hear you. And you know, you know, this is interesting for me because on the one hand, you know, I worked with you for about eight years, and it, it took a long time to really fully come into this where it feels second nature to me. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it takes a long time. Mm-hmm. So, but on the other hand, I just want to show this other piece that kind of and see what you have to say about it. So, other work, for example, like in eco psychology. And you have people go out on the land who have never done this work before, mm-hmm. and you say, this is a threshold. You're going to cross this threshold, and the intention is when, you're, when you've crossed this threshold, you're going to, you, you can say, you know, the place between the world or a place where you can, you know, co- have conversations with nature, and, and you're holding a particular inquiry, maybe about your calling, maybe about something that you're struggling with in your life, who knows. And you go out in nature, and people inevitably, regardless of any training, come back with the most profound experiences and reflections from nature that are sometimes life-changing. So I'm just, yeah, curious how you can kind of speak to that and incorporate that with the, you know, the valid point about also mentorship. Yeah. In those moments, let me put it this way, in those moments, they let Mother Earth be their mentor. They let Mm -hmm. nature be their mentor. In those moments, they release to full experience. And like you said so beautifully, we are wired, we're designed to know through direct experience out of nature. That is our design. And so if somebody comes into a process, um, like you're describing, they're giving over to that process, then they are ready to release and and. They know they're dedicated, and so they go out and they release. So what's actually happening to them is their awareness is releasing away from the ego, and they're releasing to nature and to the earth and receiving that knowledge. They're being collective in that moment. There's no other way that beautiful stuff happens. 
Right. And that, that moment of release to the bigger system, that's really what we're after. You know, the kind of work you do, the kind of work I do, we're, we're after helping people enter that moment of release. Mm-hmm. Right. Release and, and that remembering of our deep belonging that cannot be bought. <laughs> yeah. And right? that remembering yep. happens, it only happens when we're taking in that information from the bigger system we're part of. That, right. that memory is automatic because, yeah, it's in us. It's in our DNA, right? Mm. And so mm-hmm. part of our job as, as mentors is to help people know it wasn't the ego that did it. Right. Because right. the, the minute the ego tries to take ownership of it, then the state collapses. Mm-hmm. And so what, what we help people do is to mature the ego structure, and the mature ego structure is a relaxed one. It doesn't try to own everything. It resumes its, its um, uh, divine job of developing a dependable personality, a dependable identity that is bondable people to people, people to earth. So the proper bonding occurs, um, and then the ego ceases to try to own everything. It's this beautiful shift, right? Mm, right. Yeah. Well, speaking of beauty, I want to go back to this one thing you said that really struck me, to become an object of desire. Mm-hmm. That is so beautiful. And um, I just want to go back to that because, you know, a lot of what happens with calling is there's, when we don't know our calling, there can often be a sense of worthlessness yeah. because the culture doesn't mirror back to us our, you know, our value unless we're producing, doing, you know, all the things that are kind of more masculine as it's been developed by Western culture, right? Mm-hmm. And so to be an object of desire mm-hmm. by nature sounds so delicious. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, and I wonder, you know, you know, we were talking a little bit about in the beginning, if, if, again, if you're open, like how was that for you to, was there a transition for you in terms of your own sense of value and, and then becoming an object of desire, what does that mean for you? That is just so rich. And if you don't want to speak about your own, just speak more to that, that, that term that just is really riveting. Yeah, it is. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah, and, you know, it's really um, – I'll speak to the term first, and then I'll speak about my experience. Um, the fact that it's riveting to consider, to even taste the, the – the thought of being the object of something else's desire, it means that it's our nature to be desired in this world, to be loved in this world, to have other powers want to connect with us for real. That, we, that is our nature, right? And, and when, we, when something strikes us like that, it's so delicious. It means it's natural, it's right, and we should go for it, really. And, mm-hmm. and so the, the key point that, I mean, in the first, when people come to train with me in the first year, we, we are constantly on top of this very uh, question, inquiry, investigation, whatever we want to call it. The thing that we cannot afford to do is to try to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Okay? The only way we become the object of some power's desire is to release, and that release means releasing awareness of self means getting our awareness off our ego. Mm-hmm. That's the big release. And then 
then it, it sort of sparks our entire system, our entire being. It sparks our nervous system and our brains and our, our luminous architectures, and we light up in the world. We light up. And then the thing that we are really resonant with can see us. You know, when, when we're thinking, when human beings are thinking, we get dark. And spirit can't see us so much, and we get really fuzzy looking. The, the Dagger shamans say that ordinary people just look like fuzzballs. They're not distinct. You can't tell one from the other. Yeah. In fact, the Yaquis in central Mexico say the same thing. The ordinary person is this, is this um, sort of confused ball of light. It looks like a tangled yarn string. There's no clarity. You don't know who's who, right? Um, but when we release awareness to the world, that's when we light up, and that's when the thing that is naturally resonant with us, the thing that recognizes we are a reflection of its intelligence, that's when we connect. That's when we become the object of something's desire. And mm. you know, in my own experience, um, I can say that I always knew about this, but I didn't know it was a thing. So as a kid, I didn't have any language for it. But as I began to be initiated, I didn't really have the struggles that most modern people have because I wasn't, for some reason I can't really explain, I wasn't jammed into my linear mind. Mm -hmm. um, but it, the first real understanding came on my first Arctic trip, I would say. And uh, there was such... Um, it's like the land and the and the animals and the weather and you know everything that was of nature had had a big party when I showed up, <laughs> and, uh -huh. and I could feel that in my soul. Mm. Um, so you know I I I keep thinking of this little anecdote. I once had a group of students here and I sent them out to feed the ravens and see if they could call the ravens in. Um, we give them raw eggs here; they love it. So I have this one memory of one student who is leaning against the, the pine tree. Um, I put the eggs at the base of two pine trees. And he was leaning against this pine tree, yelling for the ravens, trying to make them come. <laughs> uh -huh. And, of course, there was not a raven in sight. <laughs> and mm. it, was such a, it was such a poignant effort. Um, but the key word, of course, is effort. When we try we close down. When we think about and we try to control, we close down, and we're not very attractive. The Mayans mm. will say that the, the human thinking mind makes this low grinding noise mm. that drives nature away. It's very dissonant. Mm -hmm. And so becoming the object of something's desire is also coming into the beauty, the natural beauty of who we are as the speech of nature, the speech of whatever you call the creator intelligence. And the, the corollary to this is something that the mountain spirits in South America say. They say that wisdom is encoded in beauty. Mm. So to be the, the object of some power's desire is to be recognized as an expression of their wisdom. Mm. Right. Right? Yeah. So there's not that I'm a human, you're a this. It's we're both expressions of nature, beauty, wisdom. Yeah. 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 And mm -hmm. this world that we live in, the physical world, is the expression of the creator intelligence. 
which is always encoding wisdom and beauty. That's why this world is so beautiful. Mm-hmm. It, it's a, a data bank, for God's sake, right? Mm-hmm. And humans, yeah. we have a very unique position in the in the evolution of this data bank. We have a really uh, different kind of consciousness, and we are kind of in the middle as um, nodes of convergence, as portals through which the the spirit world speaks into this world. We have a big responsibility in maintaining and evolving the beauty of this place. Yeah. So true. Yes. And how to do that? I mean, when we speak of the earth as the environment and there's that kind of conceptual cutoff, there's not the same relationship with wanting to maintain that beauty unless we have that deep, connected, and and emotional even relationship with nature. Mm -hmm. We don't remember our true role. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So what what keeps coming to mind as you're speaking is, um, you know, I I'm, I'm, have some clients who sometimes have experiences with nature that are so profound, and yet because of our Western training, we minimize them. Yes. And there's actually huge conversations going on with certain places that people are having, yeah. but they're not recognized. Right. Because we've learned to objectify nature, and that's a tree. That's not someone I'm having a deep relationship with. And so, uh, you know, I wonder what you have to say about that in terms of where it's already happening and we don't even see it. We can't even fathom that it could be that profound mm-hmm. that we, when we move somewhere, we might grieve that place we may not even get over the grief of moving from certain places because we haven't recognized the depth of the relationship we can have with land, with animals, with the waters, with nature in all its forms. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. You know, it it all comes back to the the problem with how modern people use awareness. Um, Our awareness is, and this has been happening over 2,000 years, basically, plus a few, um, our awareness is pretty much jammed into our linear mind. So we are only aware of the physical world. We're only aware of going from point A to point B. We're only aware of this or that. It's an either-or world in the strategic mind. So we have to choose this or that thing. And with all the awareness running through the linear mind where the ego is. The ego's original job has been distorted, and instead of just bonding for the sake of thriving, the ego begins to grab and cling and own. And so if I find an an oil source, I own the oil well, and you don't, right? (laughs) And um, I want money, and so I sell the oil, and you don't and I get rich, and you know the other person doesn't. And so we actually, you're right, we actually cease to see the world. We cease to understand systems. And really all it takes is a shift in awareness. You're describing uh, these people who, and, and we've all seen it you know, as, as teachers in these realms, you send somebody who's, who's fairly available to have a new experience. You send them out into nature and say do xyz and they come back three minutes later and and they're a completely different person because they released their awareness from their ego structure to the world 
and the mm. world will immediately teach that person, teach any of us. The world will show us, talk to us, say, this is how the system works. This is your part in it. This is your beauty. This is your value. And it always completely cracks open a person's heart. It cracks open their consciousness. And then that person, if they could stay in that state, would understand what their passion is in the world. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now the key is if they could stay in that state. Now why don't they? The reason is that the ego structure, when it becomes isolated, in other words, it's not aware of sensory data coming from the world. It's only aware of thought forms and form and so on. When the ego structure is no longer in an open uh, relationship and experience with the energies of the world around it, it will still have some understanding that the energies are there, but if it isn't being informed by those energies directly, it will start to think that those energies are dangerous. And it will Mm -hmm. first push them away, and then it will try to control them, either by owning them or by destroying them. And so the ego structure, when, when you reduce consciousness from its fullness to simply linear consciousness, the ego structure actually starts to try to own everything. It becomes the biggest electromagnet in the universe. And it will bring awareness to it. It will bring ideas to it. It will bring things to it. And it won't want to let go because it's basically terrified. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in our bones, we always know that we're part of a bigger thing, but we have to be in direct relationship with a bigger thing to be happy and to be relaxed and to be free. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you read Jung, if you read Jacques Lucerne, uh, there, there many, many people have investigated this in within the last 2,000 years, and they've all come to the same understanding that human beings require a relationship with what we call the mystery, with the invisible world, with the unknown. We require that. Yes. And we require a healthy relationship with our imaginations where we're not using language. Yeah. Yeah. We need that in order to be healthy. And most modern people don't have that big relationship anymore. And so, you know, as we said a little bit ago, um, you can get somebody to release for a few moments, but they'll probably snap back. And this is another reason why it's a really brilliant idea to give oneself over to a mentorship because if you have a mentor who's been through the process, that mentor can help you cross the threshold over and over and over again until your nervous system gets used to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like what you're saying about we require the mystery, the unknown, the to be beyond language. For me, that's really the core of of why I wanted to speak with you today. And really, one of the cores of of my work is just to bring that piece into calling because um, in a lot of ways, the mainstream conversation about calling is very linear and very practical and very goal-oriented and very self-oriented. And... um, you know, my understanding and experience of calling is it's an ecstatic experience in conversation with the mystery. And without that, you know, it doesn't hold too much interest for me. (laughs) So I love that you're saying that. Um, And that's really what I wanted to offer. So just kind of to let you know in terms of the 
you know, we start, this is the fourth week that we're working with calling. And the first, we just look at our mythic life. And the second, we look at the sacred wound and the sacred gift. Um, and then last week, we worked with the ancestors, which is another, you know, aspect of allies. And then now we're, we're here. And so people have already started exploring, connecting with ancestors, giving offerings. Right. And every week, we're working with those visionary channels, as you called them. Um, you know, so every week we're building the, the capacity to track all the things that we may normally dismiss or minimize or, you know, doubt. Uh-huh. And um, so I guess it uh, might be interesting to also speak to, you know, could you name what, the, what are the allies for us? I mean, we've got ancestors, we've got nature. How do you, if you were to kind of speak to name that, what, who are these allies? I don't know about categorizing. That's, again, going a little less brain, but can you say anything about that? Like, who, who is it? What is this other world? And how does it relate to calling that way? So, Well, let's see how we can say this. Um, um, okay, this is surprising. Let, let me, um, as I often do, back up a few sentences. And um, let's let's imagine the universe itself being spoken into being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking of that beautiful story about Max Planck, the famous physicist who was looking at a model of an atom one day and remarking how just looking at the plastic model, it was easy to begin to feel that um, there were forces that kept the electrons in their orbits around the nucleus, and it felt like our solar system, and wasn't that kind of cool? And and he, he sort of stayed with it, feeling what he was looking at, and he, he had this um, amazing moment where he said he realized he was feeling that there is an intelligence that moves the forces that keep the electrons in their orbits. Mm-hmm. And that intelligence, we call that intelligence God, Wirakocha, Allah, Yahweh, Pachayachacha, Wankantanka, you know, you of a thousand names, you who have a name we cannot speak is how they say it in, in South America. That intelligence is constantly speaking itself and aspects of itself into being in many, many, many worlds, but we live in this world. And that intelligence is speaking itself into being in many ways in this world as redwood trees. Yeah, as um, shorebirds, as raptors, as foxes and wolves, as dogs and cats, as jaguars, as snakes, as, you know, anything, right? Dogwood mm-hmm. trees, whatever, right? And that wisdom is also being spoken into human beings and into stones and everything, right? Yeah. And so mm-hmm. as human beings because we need to be collected, because our consciousness is designed as a collective deal, we benefit, and, and actually we are we're required, but very few people in our lifetimes are going to get this, but we, we really um, are required as awakening human beings to find what we call our allies. Um, some, in South America they will call them benefactors. Mm-hmm. And these allies or benefactors will be the the beings in nature who have the wisdom that the human also has. Mm. Now, the ally or the benefactor has orders of magnitude more of this wisdom than the poor human 
you know, humans, we, we really need a lot of education. We shouldn't be so arrogant about knowing everything. <laughs> um, we really need a lot of help to do our, what we do in the world. And so um, the thing to do, and um, this is very close to the indigenous way, is to um, go out in nature and learn how to sit in nature without thinking. That's the big task. No thinking, no explaining, no storytelling, no language in your head. Simply experience nature, right? And then um, hold an intent, again, without language, hold an intent for an ally to make itself known to you. Mm. And the ally might come in your imagination, or the ally might come in a physical form in the environment around you, they're both equally valid because they're both being perceived. So let's say um, somebody is just, you know, they, they're really busy with work and I don't have time to go out in nature. So I, I tell people to just, you know, take notice between your front door and your car every morning. <laughs> Really, uh-huh. it's enough. And I don't care if you live in the city. It is enough, right? Take, mm-hmm. take note. And many people find their benefactor in those moments. Mm-hmm. What keeps showing up? You know, the indigenous teaching is if something shows up three times in close succession in really significant ways. So it could be a stellar jay screaming at you one morning, and then you open a magazine, and all of a sudden there's an article about stellar jays. That's number two. And then somebody's talking about stellar jays three and a half days later in some unrelated conversation. That's the third appearance. Stellar jay is an ally for you. Right. So that's another way that they show up. Every human being has one. Mm-hmm. Um, we mentioned a few minutes ago uh, they often show up for modern people as stuffed animals when you're kids. Mm-hmm. Seriously, seriously. So if any, if you have an inkling of some animal that has been with you, or for some people it's a tree, for some people it's a particular river. You know, rivers are conscious beings, right? For some people mm-hmm. it's a mountain. They're conscious, right? Um, whatever it is, the best thing for modern humans is to take advantage of things modern humans have created, uh, i.e. books, and go read about the biology of the thing or the geology of the thing. Um, mm. You know, for instance, uh, Wolf is a big ally of mine. And uh, if you study how wolves live, they are extremely collective and they have a beautiful social structure, interwoven social structure, where um, the the uncles help to babysit the cubs while the parents are out hunting. And um, one one wolf pair in in a whole um, community of wolves might do the hunting once, and then um, three of the pairs go out and hunt together. Uh, it isn't every wolf for himself or herself. It's a community. Mm-hmm. It's a community, and, and at whatever strata of that community, um, you have a role, you have responsibilities, and as you grow, that role and those responsibilities change. So there's a tremendous amount of community and, and, and collective wisdom and caring, um, for the, caring for the species itself, caring for, for that collective and its evolution. Um, they're very, very good at nurturing. They're excellent hunters. And they don't destroy, you know, the whole thing about going after wolves. 
they, they are really not enough wolves to ruin anybody's um, cattle herd. Mm. They're only going after food, and there's a balance there. Um, they are exquisite communicators. They, their howls and their songs, they can communicate over miles and miles. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's absolutely beautiful. They're, they're very, very eloquent animals. And so all of those powers are somehow, they have a seed in me because Wolf showed up mm-hmm. to be an ally. And Wolf continues to teach. Right. So we, we can apprentice in a way to to yeah. our ally as yeah. we learn about it and, and work with embodying some of those qualities or recognizing the ones that are already in fruition. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's interesting. So on the one hand, there's this kind of, is there only, would you say there's one or there's many benefactors? Or how, how do you hold that? Or how do the cultures that you've worked with hold that? Yeah, many. I have, um, oh, at l- I would say I have uh, five or six primary uh, benefactors from the animal realms. And mm-hmm. in my mesa, I have five mountain spirit benefactors. So it depends yeah. on your plug-in to the world. The more yeah. you wake up, the more um, the intelligences in our world, in our universe, see you and uh, come and connect with you. Um, right. It's really different than saying, oh, I want 10 allies. And you know how modern people do that, just go out and kind of grab them? And those are not real allies. They have to actually show up in a visionary sort of way, these ways that we've been discussing. Yeah, so let me ask you this. <clears throat> There's this, these allies that are very, very specific to our being and our medicine and our ways of being that are natural to us, our own true nature. And then there are, you know, like say in the Dagara of West Africa, you've got the element and you've got the fire and the water and the earth and the mineral and the nature and anybody can, can access. We need all of those. And would you consider that a way of tapping into allies as well? When we're grieving, we go to the water spirits. When we need more fire for our calling, we go to the ancestors and the fire. Like, do you hold that the same way? Is that a form of uh, tapping into allies? I wouldn't say uh, that any indigenous person would call them allies. I, they, they hold that more as um, working with the elements that form our world. You know, the indigenous mind will work with source powers, source intelligences. And there are certain things, we call them elements. There are certain intelligences in this world, uh, the elements of this world that have particular powers. And so... Um, if you, uh, if we use the dagger of uh, cosmology for a moment, if there's reconciliation work to do, you do water rituals. If there's grieving and cleansing, you do water rituals for sure. Um, in other cultures, for grieving and cleansing, you use fire. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it depends on the culture and the kind of geography they live in, what those powers will do for them. But the, but an element is not an ally. Um, for, for initiated people, in some cultures, they'll recognize that certain shamans are, um, they really carry the way or belong to the way of a certain element. Mm. Um, we, we'll reference fire people. The Hopi, there was a fire clan. There are clans for the elements because those people were really resonant with the medicine or the, the wisdom of fire. 
you know, medicine, wisdom, and power, these three English language words are interchangeable in the indigenous mind. Medicine. Right. Wisdom, yeah, go ahead. Medicine, wisdom, power, interchangeable. Right. And so, I, you know, part of what I'm wanting to offer for people are ways to access, you know, like you're saying, beyond our personal self, right? There are these access points, or you could say plug-in points, or, you know, in one way that sometimes it comes to me is more like a, a battery. Like we, get, we can get charged in a way that we don't get charged when we're just um, referencing ourselves. And so I do notice with, and so I wouldn't, you know, in terms of the way you're holding it, I get it's not an ally, um, and yet I feel like it's a resource yes. for, for calling that's so essential. And if we're speaking about connecting with the other world, again, the way we objectify things, oh, it's just a bowl of water. Well, actually, <laughs> it's a lot more than a bowl of water, especially if you've spoken to it and asked it to help you. And so um, just wanting to name that, I love what you're saying about really tracking what shows up and the synchronicities and it's already there. You just have to open your eyes to it and it's reflecting your nature. Uh-huh. And then the, the just accessibility of support that's there in all these forms that are around us all the time, yeah. you know, uh-huh. in terms of elements. I find that to be such an accessible and important way for us to, um, you know, realize we're not alone and realize there are powers available, and they're so receptive to us if we just make the relationship and ask, you know? Um, so. Yeah, and it's, it's actually even deeper than that. We are made of these elements. Yes. And we want to be careful not to anthropomorphize them. Um, you know, even, um, you know, working with water, water is a power. And uh-huh. to have that power help us, we have to connect with it. So for, for modern people, this is a very difficult distinction to make, but we need to be careful that the I inside us, the ego, isn't saying, help me. Mm. It's a very different um, proposition to be actually in collective consciousness where, yes, you know who you are, but when you connect with a power and ask for assistance, it isn't just for the self. It's for the whole of your consciousness and your conscious plug-in to your community and the world and beyond. Right. And um, and so, um, I, you know, I think really the, the, the most extraordinary um, way for modern people to understand this, because a lot of this can't be spoken. You know, in South America they say there are things that are known but can't be told. Because mm-hmm. um, this is experiential, and, and our yeah. experiential wisdom is what creates language. So you can't have language that goes back and explains the experience. It's right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's to really um, allow people to experience without explaining. I, I do a lot of that in the training. I say, just try this out. See what happens. Yes. Uh-huh. And then bit by bit by bit, with the support of the mentor, here's another reason that we really need the mentor, because if we don't have the mentor, what do we have inside us, our critic? Right? That's a big, big piece. We yeah, work with a, a lot. Yep. We could do another hour right there. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so with the support of someone who is a few steps, even a few steps ahead of you on the path, ahead of us on the path, it, mm-hmm. that's all it takes, right? Um, 
to just have the experience and discuss the real experience and teach people to discern between the the ordinary mind's opinion of something versus the actual experience. Yeah, and you know, it also strikes me that um, um, you said something a few minutes ago about uh, noticing how people tend to diminish the really big moments. Yeah, but if you think about what we've been talking about, awareness trapped in the linear mind, which is a, like a bare two tablespoons of our brain. In the linear mind, we don't have the wiring to comprehend the experience. And it's so much smaller, those two mm. tablespoons, than the rest of the three-pound brain that it has no choice but to diminish. Mm. And so it's really, the the difference here is, that diminishment comes because that's what the Western mind is capable of, and it's really pretty much its only response. Mm. Um, And what we're after is helping people reclaim their indigenous mind, which is based in the imagination where awareness is flowing through sensory data, not needing to think, not needing to figure out, just accepting the sensory experience as direct, pure knowledge. Mm. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you have your people read um, Secrets of the Talking Jaguar. Um, no, I haven't. Oh, I, I highly recommend that for people who are stepping into these realms. Um, Martin Prechtel, bless his heart, was very, very honest about the struggles he had when he was initiated by this extraordinary um, Atitlan Mayan shaman. And mm-hmm. he describes the things that we're talking about. He describes his struggles and what he discovered. And it's a very, very good reference book. It kind of can serve as a, as a Bible for people in the first few years of the, of the kind of um, connections that we're talking about mastering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in a way, it's, um, you know, you have this background that is, you know, you've got the science and you've got the mysticism and you've got initiation experience and you've got, you know, your biochemistry and you bring so much to it. And, um, there's a way that I think part of my medicine is to help people also, it's almost the other side of like to help make it simple, you know? And so to help people feel how it's already there in a way and to really, it's so much, and this is literally, I think one of the most important things I got from you was to not believe my Western mind. Like that, mm-hmm. if, I, if I had one thing to take, that was it that allowed me to continue to trust my direct experience. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really hope to pass on yeah. is to really help people trust their direct experience. And, yes, it's not going to be perfect. And, yes, mm-hmm. there's, you know, like you said, you know, you may go into that place of release and then the mind will come back. But something's been seeded and something will grow. And you just keep moving in that direction and allowing it to grow even though we open and we close and we open and we close and we trust and we doubt, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter if uh, a mentor has the um, extraordinary learning experiences that I, that I I believe the spirits dragged me through <laughs> or if they have another kind of journey to becoming a mentor that that's not really the point that I think the point is what what you said is that it actually is very 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 simple it mm. is really simple I re, mm. I always think of Angelus Arian saying the sacred is always simple 
truly is. Yeah. And, um, you know, I use my, my various chunks of training to help people understand the science of a thing or right. the biology of a thing. But, but at the base of it, yes, it is very, very simple. And, um, and you said it really well that all it takes is a desire to open and mm. consistent and persistent practice. Right. You know, the Yaqui um, uh, masters in central Mexico talk about the, the problem that modern people have with the inner dialogue, you know, the blah, 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 and how come and why and yada, yada, that language stream that runs in our head, and they say that the, the way to turn off the inner dialogue, well, first they say everything is possible once the inner dialogue is turned off. Mm. It's so simple when once you get rid of the inner dialogue, and they say the, the inner dialogue uh, is turned off in the same way that we learned to speak in the first place, which mm. is persistently and consistently practicing. Mm. But in this case, practicing not having language in our heads. Mm. So these very simple approaches, this is, you know, because not everybody is going to become a deeply initiated shaman. It's not everybody's path. No, you know, what we would love to see is a world that is filled with conscious people mm. with people who can open and connect and it is very simple mm. you know so I salute you in your work it's brilliant <laughs> thank you well I do see we're getting close to the hour and I don't want to go over your time so um, I, I love leaving people with just simple like 101 steps if there's one thing you would say to someone who this is new for what's one thing they could do to start exploring, and then please share what resources you are offering and your website so people can reach you if they're feeling drawn to being mentored. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I think that um, the most important thing people can do is to do the exercise that the Mayans call being in a place well. Mm-hmm. And we've been talking about it throughout the hour just simply finding a place in nature and hanging out the car window doesn't count. Um, <laughs> I went through somebody asked, that. does that count? <laughs> finding a place in nature. It can be a park. It can be a strip of grass, you know, between the street and the sidewalk. It just has to be some earth and some natural things that feels mm-hmm. good. It has yeah. to feel good. And the task is to sit there wide awake no dozing off, wide awake, experiencing the surroundings through one's senses without any language in your head. No explaining, no stories, no comparing, no, just realizing that you can experience directly the feel of a place, the colors, the textures, the shapes, the, the temperature, the humidity, the speed of the wind, the, the depth of um, the, what's underneath the grasses. You know, the grasses seem like the smallest thing, but they're really not. You know, how much <laughs> you feel and see and hear and smell and begin to taste because the olfactory channel takes both of those, scent and taste, and, mm-hmm. and know that, that direct knowing that we have, um, how much of the energy of a thing um, can you experience? Uh, and really, it's best um, 
if if uh, people want to try that, it's best to do it for at least 30 minutes at a time. Um, and if language comes into your head, just toss it out and start again, because as Anina, as you just said, we open, we close, we open, we close. Nothing in nature moves in a straight line. We're not looking for that kind of perfection. So we get to a, a beautiful open state, we lose it, we go back. That's a, a teaching in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for the times when, when you don't have half an hour to find a spot in nature, sit there, um, another great exercise is, and you can do this in your office if you have a flower in a vase, gaze at the flower and experience the energy that it is. Not its energy, but the energy that it is. Mm. Everything that we call matter is just energy in a different form. Yeah. So again, no language, no stories, no explaining. It's a purely kinesthetic experience. And um, those two things are wonderful practices. Those are great and very accessible. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Two of my favorites. That's That's great. great. So tell us about you and what you do. Well, I have actually two uh, major streams of work in the world these days. Um, one uh, people can find at martyspiegelman.org. It's the Shaman's Light Training Program, which, um, as uh, Nina said at the beginning of the hour uh, with my bio, it's an in-depth, long-term training program that begins with training in awareness, as we've been talking about today, um, proceeds with an official, authentic initiation program um, students are initiated first into the Andean traditions and they become Mesa carriers. And then there are other uh, secondary initiations into the other lineages that I carry. And once mm-hmm. the initiation is um, complete, then there is uh, a three-year mentoring program where we take the initiation work even deeper and broader. And the, the whole um, arc of this training is coming into full consciousness with an authentically initiated medicine body and applying the technologies of consciousness to life as it is today in our world. Mm-hmm. Um, and beyond the mentoring program, I have a graduate level program that a number of people are in. Um, we just keep working. So mm-hmm. um, the, the bridge between Shaman's Light and my other piece of work is a course that I uh, have for my students called the Shaman's Guide to Great Business. And we are... Um, because consciousness is in the business of producing value and states of thriving, uh, that's also a definition of a business. We are in the business of applying the technologies, shamanic technologies of consciousness to business. Because I do mm-hmm. notice that many people who are interested in spirituality are not very good at taking care of themselves financially. Um, right. And uh, that really struck me a number of years ago. And I thought, well, God indigenous work is all about producing value and states of thriving so what's missing here so we have that business course but i also have a a second business called awakening value uh in which is a very collectively designed business i'm a member of a federation of business advisors and we put together high level teams to um uh, help very large corporations and government sectors reorganize their work and the value they produce and their connectivity to the world on as large a scale as we can manage. So Mm. redistributing uh, consciousness and redefining value creation so we can spread thriving states in the world. 
Great. Um, on the uh, Shaman's Light website, on the training page, there are online courses that are really fun. There are three levels of visionary skills available, and there's a course on archetypes. And I also have a recording called Evolving Consciousness, which is me in discussion with Courtney Smith. Courtney is a, uh, he's in the financial business. He's a, a trader and um, fund manager, and he teaches people trading. So we're talking about consciousness and value creation. And uh, mm-hmm. it's a very interesting set of recordings. So all of those are available on the Shaman's Light website. Oh, you have a, a great breadth of things you're doing. Thank you. It's fun these days. Lots of fun. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and so you have, um, go ahead. Yeah, just one more thing. I do um, have preview days uh, that are running now. I'm putting together the 2015 Shaman's Light training group. And uh, if anyone is interested, uh, your attendance at a preview day would be your next step. So, um, uh, Anina, if anybody asks you about that, just have them contact me by email. Okay. Um, and they can also find the email on my website. Okay. Great. So you have things for people who don't live near you. You've got this online. You've got your trainings, and you've got business. You've got a lot going on, and you're in Sebastopol still, I'm yes, assuming? Yes, Sebastopol, California, on a beautiful okay. seven acres that's filled with spirits, and they're waiting for everyone to come visit. So. <laughs> it's such a beautiful place. Yes. Thanks. All right. Anything else, or are we good? We covered a lot of territory. Yeah, it's been a wonderful conversation. I want to thank you also, Anina. It's been great. Yeah, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, blessings. We're going to end this recording and hope that it is food for everyone's soul who listens. Okay.